0: Well, let me welcome you to our ongoing study through the book of Romans. We're just looking at chapter 8 and we've got some wonderful verses to look at today. But let me just start with a question. Have you ever noticed how people can believe the most unbelievable things? I mean, back in the late 19th century and late 1800s, there was a reporter who worked for the Winstead Citizen Press in Winstead, Connecticut. Now, I lived in Connecticut for a year. I was on internship in my third year of seminary. I had gone on internship in a little town called Cromwell, about 40 miles south of Winstead. And so I was there, but I never visited Winstead. But there was a man who lived in Winstead and worked for the Winstead paper, Citizen paper, and his name was, was Lewis Stone. And, and what he came to realize is that what he put in print, what was in the paper was believed to be true by most everybody who read it. I mean, no matter how outlandish it was, no matter how unbelievable it seemed, as long as it was published in the paper, people would read it as if it was true. And so what he began to do is he began to send back news items and, and, and uh, reports about what it was like to live in America comparing to what it was like to live in, in Europe. And so he sent back to people in Europe all these wonderful things about America and what it was like living in America. And he said things like this. In America, there's an apple tree that actually produces baked apples. In America, there's a squirrel that will use its tail to shine the boots of men every morning. In America, there's a cow that's kept in an ice house because it's producing ice cream. In America, there's a cow that's owned by two women and it's so modest that it won't let a man milk it. And he started sending these reports back to Europe, and eventually his tales became so outlandish that people just began to think, you know, this can't be true. And eventually he became known as the Winstead liar. He loved doing it, but people learned that his fabrications were more, nothing more than lies. You know, we live in a world where somebody enjoys fabricating lies as well. And he's propagated a lie that's gone on for century upon century upon century. And it's a lie that God judges us for the, not the wrong things we've done, but the right things that we've done. That God doesn't judge us for the wrong things we've done, but God judges us for the good things that we've done. And so if we want to be pleasing in the eyes of God, we just have to make sure that we've done more right actions than wrong actions. We've done more good things than bad things. And if we can balance that scale in our favor, then what we understand is that we're going to be okay before God. Years ago, a field came out that talked about that. The, the name of the film was called Courageous. It's a great movie. I don't know if you've got, you saw it years ago, maybe 10, 12 years ago it came out. as a great movie, but the, the one scene really touched me. And it's a scene when Nathan, this friend of the, one, the main character, is talking about how God will judge us on Judgment Day. And he said to his friend, he explains to him, that God doesn't judge us based on the good we've done, but God judges us based on the bad or the wrong we've done and committed. And because of that, because that no matter how many good things we've done, God ba- judges us on the wrong things, that we have to look for the forgiveness of God in our lives. It's a great, a, a great uh, scene. I want you to see it. So just watch it on your screen for a moment. Now, wasn't that a fantastic a scene in that movie. We're starting again t- today. We're continuing on in our in our series called More Than Conquerors, and and Paul begins by sharing the dilemma that he faced when he, he thought about Judgment Day as well. And the dilemma that he faced is that how is it that a guilty person can stand before a holy God and not be found guilty? That's what he was concerned about. How is it that somebody who has done wrong can stand before a god who only accepts what is right and be found to be not guilty and and his struggle he put down in pages of of chapter 7 and his struggle was the things i want to do i don't do the things i don't want to do i do and he says what a wretched man that i am who will rescue me from this body of death and it's almost as if there's a dramatic pause in what he's saying And then he comes up with the answer. And his answer is, thanks be to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the answer. And that understanding led him to make one of the greatest declarations that we have maybe in the New Testament, maybe even in the whole Bible. And it's where he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know what? I cannot... I cannot overemphasize and overstate the significance of this verse. I mean, because the Bible is telling us that once we're a follower of Jesus, once we have given our lives over to Christ, the possibility of us ever being condemned by God is now off the books. It's never going to happen. It's a never, ever event that is ever going to happen to us uh, because of what Christ through his Spirit has done for us. And now we can live free from the fear of eternal death. That's really what Jesus was, our, our Paul discovered, that he now could live free from the fear of standing before a holy God and finding himself guilty there. He could live free from the fear of eternal death. You know, back in 1933, a bridge was uh, started to be constructed. It was in California. It was called the Golden Gate Bridge. And it became one of the wonders of the world. And, and when construction began, there was just a kind of the assumption that was in place in that day. That, I mean, the bridge was high above the sky. It was 200 feet to the water below. And the assumption was that every so often as people, as the construction workers would walk along the steel girders, one would slip and fall and they'd fall to his death. And and because of that, they they just let the workers know that there's a one in a hundred chance that you could be the one that will fall to his death. And so they just had that as an industry standard. They just thought that's the price we're going to have to pay in order to get this bridge constructed. And so every so often a, a worker, and in fact it did happen that there were some workers that did fall off that bridge and they fell to their deaths 200 feet below. The problem was because of that danger, I mean, the men were really cautious, really careful, uh, really slow in the construction work that they were doing, which uh, is understandable. And, and what the result was that the the project was just creeping along; it wasn't getting done as quickly as they wanted it to get done, and and and. Be, uh, That continued on until a man named Joseph Strauss said, you know what, we can't just let this keep on going. Enough is enough. I'm going to do something about it. And here's what he did about it. He decided, you know what, if we hang a net underneath the bridge, then if a man slips and falls, he's not going to fall to his death, but he'll fall and fall into the net. And so he installed a novel safety feature. Hadn't been used before, and that was to put a net underneath that entire bridge. Bridge. In fact, I got a picture of what it looked like and, and, and you know, that, there, there it is. I mean, and there's guys on that girder there walking without the fear that he's going to fall off and die. And with that underneath, I mean, all of a sudden the work changed dramatically. I mean, the workers were far more confident. They uh, it accelerated the project, and they were able to keep moving ahead. And even though there were a couple men that did fall off the bridge, and they, they slipped and they fell, they didn't fall to their death. They fell into the net below. And the ones who did fall became known, and they called themselves the, the uh, halfway to hell group. I mean, because they're the ones that fell. They're the ones that were rescued by the net, and they walked away to tell the story. Here's what I want to say. There's a safety net below us as children of God. And it was put there by the Holy Spirit. And he did it so that we now live in a whole new realm, a realm where if we fall or if we fail, it's not death. But it's a realm of you have nothing to fear on Judgment Day. So here's what I want to talk about today. If it's really true that you and I live in a no-condemnation world for those of us who are in Christ Jesus because we've been freed from the law of sin and death and and moved over to the the law of the spirit of life, how then do we live? I mean, that's the question, isn't it? If it's true that we will never be condemned by God, we will never hear God say to us on judgment, you stand condemned for the sins that you've committed, if all that is off the books, how then do we live in this world with that new understanding? And what paul gives us is is the truth of how we ought to live and he gives us uh true thoughts to think about and and uh points to consider in fact i'm going to give you three things that he tells us that should be now the way we live in this life based on the fact that there is no condemnation for those of us who are in christ jesus so let's talk about that here's the first thing we are to set our minds on things of the spirit in other words, we are to set our minds on the things above or the things where the Spirit is. If we are the people who have been declared free from condemnation, then we're never going to face God's judgment in our lives or God's wrath on our lives. The first thing Paul says is to set your minds on the Spirit. In fact, here's how he says it. Romans 8, verse 5 through 8. For those who live according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. And that's understandable. If you live according to the flesh, that's where your mind is going to go. But those who live according in accordance to the Spirit uh, set their minds on things of the Spirit. And then he says, for the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. So really what it all comes down to is where do we set our mind? If we set our mind on the flesh, it's death. If we set our mind on the Spirit, life and peace. Now, Jesus said something similar to that when he was talking to the people in the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus said that the, you live in a world where people set their minds on things that cause them to be anxious. And so he said to them in, in Matthew 6.31, Therefore, do not worry, saying, What shall I eat, and what shall I wear, and where sh- or what shall I drink? For he says, These things, these are the things that the Gentiles seek, Okay. In other words, Jesus is saying, don't set your mind on all the things that this world has people setting their mind on because that's what Gentiles do. You're not a Gentile in a, in a way that you don't believe in God. You believe in God. You're a follower of me. Set your minds on the things that result in life, and, and the things that are not of this world, the kingdom of God. Let me show you why he's why that's so important, and why we can make that understanding. When, when God created us, he created us in his image, didn't he? And, and, and the image of God is that he is a triune God, which means that he's, he's three in one, Father, Son, and Spirit. Three in one. Three persons, one essence, and makes him a triune God. And in a similar way, when God created us, he created us as triune people, And what's the three things about us? We have spirit and mind and body, okay? And so, God is Father, Son, and Spirit, and you and I are Spirit, Mind, and Body. And so, when God created Adam in the Garden of Eden, it was God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, And creating Adam was spirit, mind, and body. And there was this beautiful connection between the two that the Bible talks about how they walked in the cool of the day, they communed with one another, they enjoyed life together with each other, and it's because their spirits were connecting with each other, spirit to spirit, God's spirit. Adam's spirit. And so they had this spirit-to-spirit connection, so they were living in harmony and communion with one another, and everything was great because spirit-to-spirit connection was taking place. And then you know what happens. Adam sinned. And he decided That rather than just rely on the relationship that he had with God, spirit to spirit, that he saw the fruit that was in the tree in the midst of the garden, and he thought, that looks good, I'd like to have that. And he thought about it, and he decided that I'm going to take that. And when he did that, all of a sudden his mind decided that it wasn't just enough to have a spirit to spirit relationship with God, but he now he thought that if I could have that, Then I would have more to life, and all of a sudden, it flipped, and now it was, instead of the spirit being on top, it was his flesh being on top, the material things, the things that he could get on his own. And so all of a sudden, his mind shifted his focus from spirit to body or mind, and so now it was body, mind, and flesh. And all of a sudden, there was no connection with God any longer. That had been broken. Because the, 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 now, where he was focused on was his body, rather than his spirit. You know, you notice my fingers? There's one finger that's not moving, right? It's my, the middle finger, the mind. And the mind has the ability to do what? Focus on the spirit that gives life, or the spirit, let's do it this way the spirit that gives life, or the body that produces death. And you and I have the ability, capability, capacity to focus either on the spirit, union with God, or body, feeling that something's wrong that produces death. And that's why Paul says what? Set your mind on the things of the Spirit. Because that's what produces life with God. Let the Spirit be the dominating driver in your life. And so what else he'll write to the believers in Colossae? Say the same thing. Colossians 3.2, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. He'll write to the believers in Philippi, and he'll talk about the same thing. He'll say, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if there's anything that is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Why? Because those are the things that have to do with the Spirit, right? Pure and lovely and noble and true and right. Those are the things that have to do with the spirit. And if we can keep that spirit connection with God, then we know life. And so point number one that Paul says, since we are living in the realm of no condemnation, see, what we do? We set our mind not on the flesh, but on the spirit. Let me give you a second point. Second thing he wants us to understand, if that's true, that we set our mind on things of the Spirit, the second thing we do is we put to death the the things of the flesh. Now Paul says it like this, so then brothers, we are under obligation, but not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die, but if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So once again, we see the difference between death and life, don't we? Once again, we see that living according to the flesh produces death. Living according to the Spirit produces life and peace. It brings life. See, but now Paul is telling us that we are not under obligation to do anything that has to do with the flesh, to live in any way that's pleasing to the flesh. Now, the word that he uses there is an interesting word because the word that he uses is the word obligation, and what the word obligation means is this, that we owe something to someone, that we sense that it within our minds that we owe something to someone for what they've done for us. So if they've shown an act of kindness to us, we feel like, you know, I feel a little indebted to them because they showed me such an act of kindness. And so obligation is this feeling that we are, need to repay a debt to somebody else because of the good things that they've done for us. I mean, years ago, Your grandparents probably used a phrase that was very common in that day, not so much common in our day, but they would oftentimes say when somebody showed them a kindness, they would often say, you know, much obliged. Somebody did something good for them, much obliged. And and basically what they were saying is that, you know what, I am in your debt. I didn't expect you to do that. There There was no reason or pressure for you to do that, but you showed me that kindness, and now I'm indebted to you. I feel indebted to you for what you've done for me. I feel that there's a payment necessary for the goodness that I received from you. That's what the word obligation is is describing. It's describing a feeling that I'm obliged, I'm much obliged for what you've done. And so here's Paul, and he says, you know what? When it comes to your flesh, you're under no obligation to your flesh. You should feel no much obliged to what the flesh is doing in your life because what it's doing is it's just producing death. The flesh doesn't give life. It gives just the opposite. It produces death. See, and so the only obligation that you and I have then is to who? It's to God and the Spirit and to our Lord Jesus Christ. And our obligation to Him is because He set us free from the law of sin and death And move us into the realm of no condemnation see the obligation of life then paul is saying is to god and and what do we do then we then put to death the flesh because we're not obliged to follow it and so we put to death the misdeeds of the flesh Because we have nothing that we owe to our flesh for what it's done in our lives. And so, point number two, the second thing we need to understand when it comes to living a, a no condemnation life, is that we put to death the things of the Spirit. we got one more point. One more thing that Paul wants to understand. Not only do we set our mind on the Spirit, things of the Spirit, not only do we put to death the things of the flesh, but here's the third thing. Uh, we are to live in confidence that we are children of God. We are to live in confidence that we are children of God. And let me read that for you. Verse 14. And those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. I mean, these are tremendous verses. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave, again, to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies to our spirit that we are God's children. And now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. I mean, this is such a a, a fantastic statement. In fact, I'm gonna take next week and we're gonna really look at what this means. We're gonna really look at what it means to be adopted into the family of God and how wonderful that is. But the point here is is that It's God who's made us his children. It's God who's adopted us into his family. I mean, we've been promised an inheritance from God. We've been promised a family life from God. We've been promised to be his sons and daughters. And so our identity now is that we are God's children. That's what it means to live a no-condemnation life, that we have been welcomed into the family of God. And so we don't live as slaves to flesh, we live as sons and daughters to God, and we affirm that adoption by being in the family of God. Now, let me wrap this up. You know that, when those, as I said, when those workers were up on the Golden Gate Bridge, they had at first feared falling off the bridge, but when that net was put in place, they no longer feared falling off that bridge because they had the safety net underneath them. And what happened is that men actually, because they were so set free from the worry of falling, off the bridge is that they began to jump off the bridge into the net below because they knew that nothing would harm them. And they knew that they were safe, and so they began to start jumping off. And as one did, he says, you know what? You jump off. And then another worker would jump off, and another worker would jump off, and another worker would jump off. And all these guys were just having fun jumping off the bridge, being, you know, saved by the net below. It actually got to the point, I understand, where they had to, you know, correct these guys and say, you can't keep doing that. The work is suffering because you're spending so much time jumping off the bridge, and, and finally, the, the, you know, the, the foreman came and put a stop to us and said, you know, don't jump. If you fall off the bridge, we're glad the net is there, but quit jumping off the bridge. You can't do that any longer. And that's how it should be with us. Knowing that there's no condemnation for those of us in Jesus Christ, it doesn't mean that we can live any way we want. It doesn't mean that, you know, I, don't, I, I am free to do whatever I want because God's not going to condemn me. I can live any, any way I'd like because God's not going to condemn me. I mean, the net is there, and you are going to be safe. But the fact of the matter is, you don't use that safety net as an incentive for you to live in a way that isn't appropriate. God wants us to use the safety net there as a way to live even more holy lives so that we set our minds, as I said. So now, because God has saved us and made it no-condemnation world to live in, what do we do? We set our mind on things of the Spirit. If He did this for me, I set my mind there. We put to death the things of the flesh. Why would I live for the flesh? I'm not obliged to the flesh. And we celebrate the fact that we are in the family of God, a God who loves us dearly, To make us his sons and daughters and so what's our response to a god who says there is therefore now no condemnation for those of us who are in christ jesus a response to him is god i am so indebted to you i am so indebted to what you've done for me the kindness you showed to me let me please you by living according to your word let me please you by living according to your spirit let me please you by walking in accordance with what your spirit is telling me to do. That's the no condemnation world. And that's the world I hope that you and I are glad to be able to live within. Not to take advantage of, but to live in obligation to. God bless, I hope this has blessed you this morning.